We have a theory of mind. We assume that other things, and certainly other people, and probably all other animals, mm -hmm. but you probably don't think that about flies, but I do, because I understand them, <laughs> that they're all conscious. They all have some, they're similar in some way to us. You project that onto them. Hello and welcome to the Pint of Science podcast, a podcast produced in that most productive of places, the pub. Oh yes. This week we caught up with Matthew Cobb, Professor of Zoology at the University of Manchester, here at the Salutation Inn, which is lovely and has a whole function room that we've been gifted, which was very, very kind of them. Yeah, that's worked out pretty well. And being Manchester, it's brought back a fair few memories. It certainly it has. I'm feeling nostalgic, Jim. Yeah, because we actually both studied here. We did both study here. And, and in fact, lived together. We did live together, yeah. So yeah. this is where this, this bromance on air that you hear blossomed. And actually, you have already met our guest for tonight, haven't you? You, I in fact, were taught have. by him. I was lectured by Matthew Cobb in my first year anatomy degree. He taught me animal diversity. I can remember a lot of SpongeBob SquarePants that's featured heavily in his first lecture. I can remember other ones too. <laughs> Just like Probably. I can remember whole amounts of my undergraduate degree. It definitely hasn't all gone. That's true. <laughs> yes, Matthew taught me at undergraduate and he was every bit as fantastic a storyteller then as he remains today. His tastes are extremely eclectic. Neanderthals. Theory of mind. Denisons, are we alive? How do we know? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, we're, we're pretty much giving a synopsis of the whole podcast now. So maybe now is as good a time as any to stop doing that and instead remind you all to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Tell your friends about it. Get on Twitter and use the hashtag PintCast19. That's it. Tell everyone. And as well, start getting excited about Pint of Science Festival because it is not far away now, people. Make sure you get your tickets from pintofscience.co.uk. Sign up to our subscriber list. There are so many great events happening, including in Manchester, where we find ourselves today. Now time to fill your ears and your glasses with a pint of science with this week's guest, Professor Matthew Cobb. This podcast is made possible with help from our sponsors, Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and then explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. So if you're inspired by what you hear today and want a little more of the science behind it, check out Brilliant.org and download the app. There's a link in the description and the first 200 people to subscribe will get 20% off their premium plan. Your interests are, are amazing and I think to sort of rein myself in and not just go off on random tangents, we should start by taking it back to the very beginning. So when you first started in the world of science, although actually, as I understand it, you didn't quite start in the same thing you're now in. You went and did psychology, is that right? Yeah, but psychology in those days was very different from what it is today. So in the department where I was at in Sheffield, you know, I had lectures on Freud, on behavior genetics, on artificial intelligence, on computer vision, on a whole range of things. So basically it was really neuroscience but with some of the kind of floppier stuff still uh, <laughs> hanging on. And as an undergraduate, I decided to do what I'm still doing. I was in my second year in 1976, and I read a little article in uh, New Scientist, and this described how they'd made flies that couldn't learn. They didn't know, but they assumed that what they'd done was made what's called a point mutation. So it's a single letter of DNA has changed between the flies being able to learn and the flies not being able to learn. 
And I thought, crikey, that's astonishing. You can, you know, use genetics to get at the basis of really quite sophisticated behaviours. And I thought, OK, right, that's what I want to do. I didn't know. I was very lucky. I happened to be in one of the only two places in the UK at the time that did Drosophila baby genetics. Mm-hmm. So these tiny little flies, so the flies that if this was the summer, they'd be buzzing around your beer. The flies that you get hanging around your fruit bowl or coming out of your bin. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit weird. So in September, when there's loads of flies about, and I open my green bin and they come billowing out, I'm very pleased. You know, <laughs> I always feel proud. So they're about two millimetres long. They're really, really small. That is the downside of studying Drosophila. They are very, very tiny. As it happened, we went on to have practicals doing Drosophila and all the rest of it. So I was able to uh, talk to people who were doing this kind of research and ended up doing my PhD there. So in fact, it's exactly the same thing. I see. I see. Maybe, wow. maybe on paper it didn't look quite as similar as yeah. you just made it sound. It is. I'm still doing, over 40 years later, I'm still doing what I decided I wanted to do when I was a second year student. I see. Wow, and so cool. I mean, yeah, I guess I was going to go down a whole line of yeah. how easy it is to shift around in yeah. science. But maybe that disproves that one slightly. So you weren't trying to apply Freud to fruit flies or anything like no, that? No, I, uh, I did my dissertation on Freud, so I've uh, done all that. And at the moment, I'm writing a book about the history of our ideas about how the brain works and what I was surprised to realise was quite how much of what I've been thinking about over the last 40 years and my ideas uh, which are therefore in this book about how the brain works are in fact those that I learned and started thinking about as an undergraduate so it's the same kind of stuff that's still been rattling around my head and the ideas that Uh, I was taught by my teachers. I'm still applying today in the way I think and what I teach and what I'm writing about. So you can't, I mean, yeah, it's the complete opposite of what you said. You're completely wrong. I'm stuck. I'm doing the same thing today as I I always have. Puts me in my place. Goes to show. You can't always be confident of your own research. Yeah, same ideas, but new technologies now, I imagine. So back then, what kind of techniques were people using to genetically manipulate fruit flies? Well, yeah, it was very, very crude because you've got to remember when I started doing research, so two things. Firstly, the genetic code had not been demonstrated in what's called a eukaryotic organism. So we didn't know, we hadn't proved, in fact, that DNA was the genetic material in anything other than viruses and some bacteria. And this was in 1976? Yeah, yeah. So the first manipulation, the demonstration that flies use DNA as their genetic material was the next year in 77. Really? Now, that wasn't a surprise. It's still got them an article in Nature, but to be honest, the opposite would have been surprising. I remember as an undergraduate reading a basic, you know, biology textbook, and there was a kind of footnote, and it said, the of DNA in genes has not been demonstrated in anything other than uh, bacteria or viruses. And I, I felt like somebody had suddenly pulled the rug from under my feet. You know, what, you, you're lying to me? Is this not true? I mean, how can you tell me all this? And then say, oh, by the way, we don't actually know this. Uh-huh. So for that, I mean, on the other hand, it was the working hypothesis from the very mm-hmm. moment that they discovered that uh, DNA was the genetic material in bacteria in the 1940s, the working assumption was that, well, it must be the same for everything. But it hadn't actually been demonstrated until that period. And then even when you'd shown that, all you could do basically was create mutants and then just kind of observe what they did. And if you were very, very lucky, you might be able to 
identify where on a chromosome it was by doing some kind of crossing experiment, very similar to what people had done when they basically discovered genetics in the 1910s and 1920s. And I suppose a lot of people will be thinking, me included, actually, <laughs> how does one use uh, Drosophila fruit flies to, to study? How do you know whether a fruit fly is learning or, yeah, or not you know learning? <laughs> well, how do we know what it's thinking? That's, that's a very difficult question. The only way we can know anything about anybody. Yeah, How do yeah, I know so, you're yeah, thinking? You know, true, yeah. I mean, so you have to observe them. You have to put them in an experimental situation. So there were a number of different experiments were were done, and it and actually tells us something about why we're interested in Drosophila. So there were two kind of competing schools at the time. I got very interested in this and started doing my PhD on learning in flies. And either you go, you treat the fly a bit like an individual rat. And so there were some very, very cool, complicated, and very time-consuming experiments done in France where they had flies walking along on a kind of treadmill, so the flies attached. And if you ever watch a fly, well, there's none around here, but in the summer, if you're out and there's a fly walking about and it meets either some sugar, if you're having a cup of coffee and you've got some sugar grains, or if there's a pool of liquid, its feet touch the substance and that's how it tastes and then it will extend its proboscis so this is called the proboscis extension reflex it can't help it, it doesn't involve the brain taste leads to this reflex of the proboscis which is the tongue thing at the front comes out so what you can do is you put your flies on a little treadmill and they're walking along and you've got bands on the treadmill which are impregnated say with sugar so fly touches sugar it likes sugar proboscis extends and then the next band, because you're a horrible scientist, has got a little electric shock in it. So if the fly puts out its proboscis, zip, it gets zapped. And you can show that just like a rat wanting to press a bar to get food and getting shocked, it will change its mind. You can show that the fly will learn. It can inhibit certain responses that normally it would want to express. Or you can get it to express certain responses that normally it would want to inhibit. Problem is, whilst that's very cool and can say, well, these amazing little minds are able to do astonishing things, that's kind of missing the point of what Drosophila is about. Why do you want to study Drosophila is because you want to screen for mutants. So you want to mutagenize the flies, and you know that most of the mutants are not going to have any effect on what you're studying. So that means you've got to do lots and lots of mutations. You've got lots and lots of different lines of fly that you've mutated. And if your experiment is really, really complicated and really cumbersome and takes forever to set up like this treadmill kind of thing, it kind of defeats the object. It's not, it's not really the point. You should be studying rats or something. You know, you're not gonna, you can't screen hundreds, potentially thousands of different flies in such a, a system. And presumably working with flies too, you've got less of the regulations around working with animals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> literally, literally nobody yeah. cares about what you do about flies. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. So the alternative approach, which was developed uh, in America, and this is the article that I read, was to actually not study individual flies and not do anything that's really kind of neat and tight and would keep a psychologist, as I was, happy, <laughs> but to do something rather messy. So this was the work of Seymour Benzer, who I later met on a number of occasions. Very, very funny man, very, very smart man. And what he wanted to do was to just to find interesting, what are called phenotypes, so interesting characters that you can see and observe in a fly and then find mutants that underlie them. 
For example, what he'd previously done was to try and understand biological clocks, which is how we wake up and how we go to sleep. And what he did was to do a very simple measure of the fly's movement. He put the fly in a little tube in the dark, and if it's got a biological clock, which it does, it'll wake up at a certain time, start moving about, and you've got a little beam and you get zip, zip, you know, recordings as the fly's moving about. You then create mutants, and hey presto, he was able to discover three mutants, one which had a very short clock, one which had a very long clock, so more than 24 hours, another one which the clock just didn't work at all. And as it happens, all those three mutants were in the same gene, he was able to show that, which led a lot of people to really not believe this was too much, this was an awful lot of luck. And as it turned out, 30, 40 years on, uh, that in fact the same gene is involved in us, that's how you got up, mm-hmm. woke up in the morning, and last year they won the Nobel Prize Amazing. for their work on deciphering <laughs> the, uh, the clock in a fly, which is basically a bit more complicated in humans, but basically the same thing. And you touched on something I was going to ask immediately there, which is how do you yeah. sort of justify studying fruit flies when we're, we're obviously the final conclusion we want is going to be about people in most cases. Well, I disagree with that. I don't think that is what we want. I mean, if I was interested in people, I'd study people. I have studied humans and they're really annoying. You can't kill, <laughs> you can't kill them when the experiment doesn't work. If I spent my first three years as a postdoc after my PhD getting twins drunk. I did this twin study in which we tried to separate out the effects of genes and alcohol. And the answer is, to all listeners, it's all noise. Uh, There was no... uh, An Australian group doing a similar study. They did a really good study. They got twins drunk, observed their responses, measured the correlation between their degree of relatedness, so whether they're identical or non-identical twins, and also their drinking habits, which is exactly what we did. They then did the best experiment which we didn't do they got the twins back six months later and they said well okay forget about all this genes and environment business how reliable are our measures if twin x they respond in a certain way what's the correlation of that response with their response six months later and they found there was no correlation at all. <laughs> so we found there was no influence of genes or environment. It was all a mess. They showed that the measures we were using didn't actually show any consistency so it's all noise Anyway, to get back to the flies. So I disagree completely that research is only interesting if it's got to do with humans. And I certainly don't think we should start off with that because you would miss... We've never... So Benzer, when he's trying to find out about the clock, he did not expect that these would be the same mechanisms. He did not imagine that these would be the same genes in a fly controlling their clock or controlling their learning. He just thought... He wanted to understand how brains worked and understand in particular the genetic factors in how brains work. So, so what he did to try and understand learning was to do a very simple experiment in which he had a tube with, again, an electric grid in it and a smell in it. And he put in loads, hundreds of flies into this tube and the flies would move towards the smell and then they'd get an electric shock. And he'd do this several times and then he'd put the flies, again, hundreds of flies, into the apparatus without an electric shock and saw how many of them moved towards the smell. So if it was a smell they liked, after they'd been shocked, far fewer of them would go into the smell. So the advantage of that was that you could do it in about five minutes, you were testing loads of flies, and you found these mutants, which initially they thought they were learning mutants, they couldn't learn. If you do some very clever experiments, you can show they can learn, 
what they can't do is remember. They forget it really, really quickly in a matter of seconds. Oh, what was that? Oh, oh my God, I've been shocked again. Right? So they're a bit dim. What was worrying was that the proportion of flies that learned was about a third of them, which, again, as a psychology student wanted to have everything really kind of tight, meant that I thought the French approach was much better. And it was a bit dim of me, really, because I didn't really get the point of using flies. And somebody indeed got that and thought, well, OK, well, maybe it's just a third of them are really smart. Maybe that's why we're getting this figure. A third of them are figuring it out. So what happens if, if you get, you've got 100 flies, you know, 30 of them are figured out to avoid the smell. If we get that 30 and we put them back in next day, what happens? Well, only a third of them learn again. So in fact, what's going on, you haven't got a smart third. In fact, what's happened, it was happening in the experiment. And a friend of mine helped to work this out with the, uh, there was this kind of huge row between these different wings of science over whether Benz had really shown learning. And one group was very critical, uh, gave their only begotten son, their best PhD student, to go and work with Seymour Benzer to try and see what was mm -hmm. going on. He noticed that, in fact, there was this kind of random thing of only a third of them seemed to be learning. And he showed that it was because only a third of them were getting the shock, simply because of the way it was, the apparatus was designed. And if you designed a better apparatus so they were all being shocked, then you got really, really high learning index. So it showed that they could all learn. It's the same pathways that's going on in your brains right now as you're desperately trying to remember what on earth you're talking about. Wow. So it's, is it kind of, it's just a coincidence that it just shows how interrelated everything is. That's, Absolutely. that's the only reason yeah. that it... Yeah. yeah. What learning is and what memory is, is technically it's a change in synapse strength. So a synapse is the gap between two neurons. It's where two neurons come together. And when you learn something, it becomes more likely that the message is going to go from neuron A to neuron B. So the more you learn it, the stronger that synapse becomes. It's a biochemical property, and it's embodied by these uh, compounds that were identified through the work of Drosophila. And we now know, as I say, it works in rats and us. It's Basically, what's going on when we're learning is that some bits of our biochemistry are becoming more likely to happen, and those bits of biochemistry are encoded by genes, and that was what was mutated in that fly that got me interested in it all those years ago. But I'm scared to say anything. I've been wrong so many times already in this podcast. You mentioned the smell experiment. So yeah. flies in a tube, smell at one end, see which ones move across. That's the beginnings of this sort of chemical communication that's become quite central to your work now. This was something you were looking at during your PhD? No, no, well... Wrong again. Uh, no, <laughs> I, well, I, didn't, I didn't get it at all. So, again, this is partly because I was working in a... I was working, really, the prehistory of, of much of science. So we knew what genes were, we knew what they did. We couldn't manipulate them, really, beyond mutating them and then just saying, OK, well, it's broken. Now, now what happens? We didn't know what that mutation meant. And did my first year of my PhD on trying to get flies and maggots to learn. It didn't really work, and we kind of, as happens often in PhD projects, you then think, oh, my God, we haven't got anything after the first year. This is going nowhere. Let's shift it to something where we can be much more confident. We will have a result, which often means something a bit more descriptive, which is what happened to me. And so I did the rest of my uh, PhD on looking at the sexual behaviour of different species of fly. So although most people just study this one Drosophila melanogaster, it's called, there are lots of different very close related species. 
So what that meant was that I spent uh, kind of two and a half years watching fruit flies fucking. Uh, <laughs> or, in, in fact, it's not, the, it's, it's not the fucking we're interested in. Uh, niche we niche interest that. website somewhere say, for that. Yeah. So. <laughs> we're not actually, we weren't actually interested in the fucking. It was the bit before. It's all in the foreplay now. So uh, that's when the, the male and the female will identify each other. The male sings a song. He vibrates his wing. This was work that had been done by my PhD supervisor actually showing that each species has a, a specific song which enables the male to tell to the female hey I'm of the right species that's what I do yeah, yeah. <laughs> what well, people did use to make all sorts of comments about <laughs> what I got up to in private um, <laughs> but none of that was true no. uh, honestly and what was interesting was that again I could look just as I didn't get the business about how you should use Drosophila you shouldn't think of it as like a rat, you should think about what you can get out of it. I study its genes. Similarly, I, I noticed some very bizarre behaviors in my PhD and didn't really think through what they meant. So there were no pheromones known in Drosophila at the time. So pheromones are the chemical signals that organisms, animals use to uh, communicate with each other. So I knew that they made this noise, this singing noise, and you see them doing this courtship behavior. If people are listening on catch up, in kind of June, July, then they'll see this on, you'll see it on your, a bowl of fruit. You'll see a little fly and then another one will come up and start chasing it. And the female is the one running away and the male's running. And if you're very lucky and you're very observant, you'll see the male put his wing out and then he's moving it up and down. He's making this signal. So you can see this, this clearly, why, you know, why is the male attracted to the female in the first place? And, uh, it was very hard to tell. And what I, <coughs> what I particularly noticed was that if you want to do these experiments, you have to divide the flies into males and females as soon as they're born, as soon as they hatch. They're not ready to mate, and so you keep them in single-sex tubes. So there's a little tube with a little bit of porridge in the bottom because that keeps the Scottish flies happy. And <laughs> then... You have got males in one, the females in the other. How do you go about... I mean, I presume that you can't look at every individual fly. How would... How oh, you've got to, yeah. So you... You do it under a microscope. So you go... Male, yeah, 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 male, boy, female, male, female, yeah. Wow, OK, just, wow. Just, just, I mean, that's what all fly yeah. geneticists spend their life doing. Because you, when you're doing an experiment, you want your females to be virgin to only mate with the males you're interested in. So if you're doing some genetics experiment, you've yeah. got to be certain that the female is virgin. Mm -hmm. and I was chatting to somebody on Twitter about this the other day. <laughs> I would use and still use the males of these species have are called sex combs, which are little bits of bristle on their front legs, the function of which isn't quite clear, uh, but only the males have them. So you can see this little black patch under the microscope. There are also differences in the genitalia, so yeah, that's what we look at. Really. <laughs> Into fly wow. genitalia. Yeah. Knobs are different from the other bits, as you might imagine. How do you advertise that PhD yeah. position? <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> and in keeping the flies in single-sex groups, I noticed that in one, a couple of species in particular, the males would get very excited and they'd, they'd run after each other and you get what are called courtship chains. So you'd, get, you'd keep 10 flies in a tube and all 10 of them would be one after the other, rushing around, vibrating their wings, getting really, really excited that they're just behind another male, which isn't actually what you'd expect from a, a biological point of view. So I just kind of noticed that and would sit and watch it, but being a bit dim, it never really went any further in my head. I now know, because later on, uh, I went to work with the people who were starting to understand the chemistry of how animals interact, in particular how flies interact. And really this work on Drosophila 
opened up the whole field for understanding how all arthropods, not just uh, in flies and not just insects, but all arthropods are communicating with each other using this stuff called uh, cuticular hydrocarbons, which is, sounds complicated, but basically they've got kind of waxy stuff on the outside of their body and this taste stroke smells of something if you're a fly. Doesn't smell or taste of anything to us. A bit petrolly, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> so, this stuff identifies both the species and the sex. Although it turned out to be a bit complicated. So, basically, you get a fly, you dunk it in a solvent, and then you put the solvent into a machine, and it will tell you a bit like fractionation. If you can remember yeah, that yeah, fractionation, yeah, yeah. you know, and when you go past an oil refinery, you can see all those flares going off. It's the same kind of principle. A different molecular weights of substance will burn off at different temperatures so you can find out what's in this mixture that you've dissolved off the pork flies dead by the way <laughs> we don't care about that unfortunately um, so we've now got this you can dissolve all the stuff off put it into a machine and then get an image of what's on the fly and the starting point is that you want males and females to be different so they can do this business of identifying each other. And very gratifyingly, that's what we found in the species that everybody studies, Drosophila melanogaster. But being a bit odd, we were interested in other species, as I'd done in my uh, PhD, and I was working in the biggest Drosophila lab in Europe in many respects. They had flies from all over the world, and we went out to Africa to find flies and all the rest of it. And we noticed that in some of these very closely related species that I've been studying for my thesis, there was no difference between males and females. They were exactly the same. So I immediately understood why I'd watched these males getting very excited uh, with other males, because they can't tell the difference. They're using other signals. They use these chemical signals as uh, an indication of... Uh, of its sexual excitement, to become sexually excited, of identification, but they can't tell the difference between the species. They're using other signals which we haven't yet been able to identify. Because I was just wow. thinking, would that be a quick way to, uh, rather than that PhD student having to look at all the uh, genitalia of each fly, could you just stick a smell that would attract all of one? But it sounds like it's far too. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're much better right? off sticking with the genitalia. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not that difficult. It's a rule for life, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At some point during that scientific story, have you moved physically? So you finished your PhD now and now we're talking about your postdoctoral work is that right no that I so I did I worked in the psychology department as I said I did my PhD this is in Sheffield did my PhD in Sheffield in psychology and genetics so that's the first kind of six years of my academic career then I went to the Institute of Psychiatry in London to work for three years on getting twins drunk yes. so I shifted from yeah, oh, uh, flies to humans the idea being well I already knew about humans because I'd studied psychology, some of which was, it wasn't all on flies and <laughs> robots and electric fish and stuff, some of it was on humans. And we were trying to understand the genetic and environmental components in our responses to alcohol. As I said, basically, it all turned out to be a lot of noise. I mean, if you think about it, you've got both ideas in your head. You can both say, okay, well, so-and-so can really hold his drink. And so-and-so she can't hold a drink, not because of the way she is, but she hasn't drunk for a long time and therefore it's affecting her much worse. So you've you got in your head both those ideas. It's both an innate characteristic, so something to do with your genes, and it's also something that you get used to, so it, it's, it's environmental. And the fact that you've got both those own ideas in your head shows 
that it's a bit of a mess and effectively that's what we showed in our experiment. <laughs> we, we couldn't identify clearly either any genetic factors or any environmental factors that were explaining the differences we saw in these twins as they got horribly drunk at 10 o'clock in the morning. Oh, nice. Well, we're, we're doing our bit right now as well. Yeah, we're no, trying to no, 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 no. So these were people who had not had, they had not had anything to eat and then we gave them something like a really, really strong vodka and tonic. Uh, so about a third of their drink was vodka. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, of course, before we <laughs> got the twins in, we actually had to do the experiment ourselves oh, to see what course. it was like. It yeah, was yeah. fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you go up like you get so euphoric so quickly. And this is the interesting thing. We were, as well as measuring coordination, how clumsy people were and how they could imagine an object turned upside down, mm -hmm. stuff like that. We also repeatedly asked them throughout the course of the experiment, which took about kind of five hours, how much do you want another drink? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the problem with doing the, if you were to try this at home, is that as you go, as you, know, you go up, you feel fantastic. And after about 45, 50 minutes after starting having the drink, it starts to go down and you want to get back up there. You yeah. that was great. So you really want to keep that high. And so that's when the craving really starts to kick in and you would not have the discipline at home to say, no, I'm no. not doing this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stop. And so that's why you get horribly, horribly drunk because you want to you keep want that. To keep yeah, you, you can keep never recapture that mood. Yeah, yeah, you can true. never recapture the peak. That's it. And if you're drinking socially, then you're going to carry on drinking and then it's all going to go horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> what we found was, of course, we're not going to give our subjects another drink. Uh, we were very bad, me and my colleague Bob, who was doing the experiment with me. I mean, we helped somebody else. She was taking blood samples from us. To She was interested in the blood responses to alcohol. And we were absolutely awful because there was two of us. You can imagine two blokes very drunk <laughs> at quarter to 11 in the morning. And we, we know it wasn't that coming. Give us some more drink. We want some more drink. <laughs> and she was going, no, no, you're not getting anything more. So for about an hour, I think we were absolutely awful. And then we kind of chilled enough to go, okay, well, we shouldn't really be nice. It's very professional. Cross the two. Do you ever get the flies drunk? I don't, but lots of people do. Yeah. So uh, Drosophila really likes alcohol. I, say, I imagine it happens quite a lot with fermented fruit and stuff. Like yeah, that. so that's what flies really like in the wild, and that's why you get them hanging around your beer, is they like the smell of alcohol because they're looking for rot rotting fruit to lay their eggs in. Because uh -huh. the, the maggots are going to eat yeast, which is growing on fruit, and the yeast as a byproduct produces alcohol. So the adults are really interested in alcohol and will move towards it. And looking at the responses to alcohol, the kind of tests I've been taught about doing in humans, people now do with Drosophila, they get the flies drunk, they see which genes are involved, which genes get turned off and on by alcohol. So, I mean, now, compared to what I was doing 40 years ago, depending on where the genes express, what part of the body is, but you could literally turn a gene on or off with a flick of a light. Okay, so there's this technique called optogenetics, which basically means you put a molecule, a gene that will code for a molecule that is a bit like an eye, next to the gene you're interested in, and that will now respond to light. 
So you can turn that gene on or off by exposing the fly to a particular light. So you've got an incredible degree of precision that I you know, would have <laughs> yeah, impossible to dream of when I was an yeah. undergraduate. So yeah, people do study alcoholism in flies. They're very interested in it. It's they very hard the- to get them to use the computers though. <laughs> yeah, they're not so good at that. But they can, you know, they can see um, which way up objects are and recognise things and stuff like that. I mean, a, an insect brain is very, very complicated. Darwin called them the most marvellous atoms of matter. They have a brain that's about 100,000 neurons. Yours, I don't know, 100 billion. So when it comes to assessing whether an animal might be conscious or or self-aware, I guess. Yeah, they're not the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) So hold on, let's define them then, because I would definitely have struggled to define them on the spot there. So conscious, what what is consciousness? That's an easy one for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, How do you define it? Well, there's, there's various different ways that people would define it. And one for philosophers, part of the mysterious thing is what they call qualia. So that's the quality. So if you watch, if you, I don't know, you look at your beer and it's nice and brown, and you've got the experience in your head of seeing it or smelling it or taste it. And defining that quality, that's where the qualia business comes from, that quality is very mysterious. It's somewhere in your head there are aspects of that are perceive I don't know it's, it's very very difficult I mean this is where I mean I'm not terribly interested in philosophy but they spend a lot of time sitting around thinking about this very very hard mm-hmm. there's a big gap between what they think they can work out just by thinking about it and what scientists can actually demonstrate so we've no idea how that works you I believe are <laughs> conscious I can't prove that I can't prove that in any organism mm-hmm. but I assume that you and the listeners are all conscious fly I don't know, I've kind of changed my, uh, my views on it a lot. When I was very young, I took a very kind of hardline behaviourist view is that, no, that, you know, we can explain everything that a fly does. It's just some kind of complicated computer. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't think that a fly is sitting there thinking in the way that we are. There is a link between complexity of brain structure and its ability. But I don't know how I could tell if a fly was thinking and what it was thinking. So, given that the basic principle of evolutionary biology is that there are no absolute qualitative leaps, certainly in the animal kingdom, you would expect a continuity. There's going to be tiny little steps. So, even you know, between us and our ape relatives, clearly there are very clear differences, but the actual genetic differences and the neurobiological differences are relatively small. That's enough to produce a qualitative leap in our ability to think and talk and all the rest of it that they don't have. But I'm pretty certain that a (laughs) a gorilla is in some way conscious. I don't know what I can do with that, but I I certainly can't prove it. Um, But then I can't prove it with you. (laughs) I just have to take that on trust. And in fact, you can see that not only do we do that every day, we have to, but we actually extend that. So we assume if you've got a pet, a cat yeah. or a dog, then you are going to assume that it's in some way conscious. You're not going to be horrible to it, not only because it's going to meow if you kick it, but because you think that it's, you, you're going to be nice to it. And you extend that to bad things. So you're going to get crossed with the photocopy and shout at it when it doesn't work. You know? <laughs> photocopy can't hear you, but you are behaving as though it was some kind of animate mm-hmm. thinking object. So we generalise, this is what, what's called a theory of mind. We have a theory of mind. We assume that other things, and certainly other people, and probably all other animals, mm-hmm. but 
you probably don't think that about flies, but I do, because I understand them. <laughs> they're, they're all conscious. They all have some, they're similar in some way to us. You project that onto them. Our theory of mind is a key part of our humanity and also of our, our, our evolution, of our organisation as a social species mm -hmm. and of why all moral systems in general say in general you know be nice to other people <laughs> uh, so you have you've written a little bit about though the kind of ways we do try to test those sorts of things there's a big argument at the moment in neuroscience community can you even you stick somebody in a in a scanner and reliably distinguish a conscious brain from an unconscious brain the answer at the moment to the satisfaction of the community is no there are some people who think they can but that's not at the moment accepted so that remains a mystery we'll park that to one side it will be resolved but not for the moment I can find out whether you are self-aware, self whether you know that you exist. And the way we do that in humans, not terribly interesting, you can ask them, uh, <laughs> but you can't ask an animal. So the way we do it in animals is this mirror self-recognition test. And there's a lot of argument about quite how valid this is, but certainly in primates, some primates, uh, it works quite nicely. So basically the idea is you get, say, a chimp, and first you've got to show it a mirror. Uh, animals don't like mirrors. They're not used to them, they get spooked. So you've got to get your animal used to there being a mirror and different animals respond to mirrors in different ways. Uh, but if you have a chimp, it, in the end it just it sees the mirror, it, it looks in the mirror, it will do various things. And then at some point, either by um, giving it an anaesthetic, in the original experiments you wouldn't do that now, you'd have to find some way of putting a mark on its forehead. So this has got to be a mark it hopefully can't feel and a mark that it can't see. The chimp then looks in the mirror and the hypothesis is if it knows that the thing in the mirror is itself, it will now notice that it's got a mark on it. Hey, wait a minute, what have they been doing to me in the night? What happened? What are they, you know, and then try and get it off. Okay. And that works with chimps. It works with a lot of orangutans. Gorillas really don't like looking in mirrors because gorilla eye contact, as you yeah, know from uh, yeah. seeing uh, Attenborough, don't Big look deal. at the gorillas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Life, uh, life hint there. Yeah. Don't look, no eye contact, like New York subway. Do not engage in eye contact. You don't know what's going to happen. So gorillas, it doesn't work because they don't like mirrors. So then people about eight years ago got some magpies. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Right, magpies, part of the corvid family. Mm -hmm. Corvids are increasingly recognised to be very, very smart. Tool users. Well, not only tool users, meta tools. They will make a tool to make a tool. <laughs> right, so that is pretty damn smart. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they can do stuff. So uh, Aesop's fables about the crow dropping the pebble into the water to raise the water level so it can get a um, fruit or whatever it is. I can't remember Aesop's fables. They've done that experiment, and the animal will do exactly that. It will drop weights in. Wow. And in fact, if you give it two kinds of weights, one of which is hollow and the other of which is not, so it's heavy, so it will sink, it's no fool. It goes straight to the heavy one. It knows what it wants. And these aren't, they haven't been trained to do it. They're just, this is insight learning. They're working out what to do. And they did the same kind of thing, except they put a little spot on the breast feathers. And I think they tested five of them. Three of them were hopeless. Two of them were pretty good. And one of them, called Gertie, she was absolutely brilliant. She could try and get this thing off her, even though she couldn't see it. Now, what's interesting about that, and it's the whole problem with Corvid's problem in terms of understanding, is their brains are very, very different to ours. So we tend to think, okay, the cortex, which is this big bit of our brain, which is really rich and all that convoluted business you see uh, on pictures of the brain, that's where all the action is. That's what we think. 
Crows don't have a cortex. They're separated from us by, ooh, I don't know how many... Uh, well, you know, they're dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, uh, 300 million years, something like that. 250 million years. A long, long time they've been separated. Corvids are in the fossil record for about 50 million years. So, one, they're doing it with very different brains to ours. Two, who's in charge here? We are, not them. So they've been doing it probably for a lot longer than we have. Uh, there's no reason to think that Corvids have suddenly developed these abilities. They've been very smart for a very long time. But they haven't done anything with it, you know. What do they do? <laughs> they cry yeah, and have, have a great time, probably. Yeah, that's about <laughs> that's it, like building yeah. up a database somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so even if you've got the smarts, it's not that's not all the evolution needs yes. to kind of drive you to dominate the planet. Our world is a fascinating place, as Matt and all the other scientists on the Pint of Science podcast are proving. And if you'd like to learn more about our scientific world, Brilliant.org is a great place to start. Brilliant.org is a website and app which teaches you science from the ground up by setting daily challenges and explaining the science behind them. Every day they publish challenges that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. Each problem provides you with the skills and framework you need to tackle it, so you learn the concepts by applying them. There are quizzes if you want to learn more and a community of fellow problem solvers if you get stuck. And Brilliant.org of course is on everything from computational biology to orbital physics. So whatever you'd like to learn more about or brush up on, there's a course or a chapter for you. Here's something else to help your knowledge evolve. We've put a link to Brilliant.org in the episode notes for this podcast. The first 200 people to sign up for the link will get 20% off their premium plan. The question I had to ask you was, when did you move to France? But instead we were like, <laughs> yeah, define consciousness <laughs> and self-awareness. But uh, you did move to France though, nonetheless. I went to France in uh, 1984. I finished my postdoc. And then in 1988, I joined what's called the CNRS, which is the National Research Organization. So I got a, a research-only post. I stayed there until 2002, working first on pheromones, mm -hmm. as you're saying, trying to work out how these flies... Uh, communicated with each other and what were the key compounds and then there must be something else because there are some species that seem to not be able to tell the difference between males and females and if, well, one of the interesting things is that this whole framework of these cuticular hydrocarbons is explaining how in initially just Drosophila and then many other insects and now all arthropods so spiders the um, wood lice that you find they're all using this the same way of communicating it's now been discovered in uh, crustaceans in the sea uh, wood lice are crustaceans but sea crustaceans will have this as well what was interesting in 1998 something like that when i was still in france i'd, I'd stopped working on flies and started working on ants but one of my colleagues uh, jean-francois ferveur said that a student had done a stupid experiment <laughs> He was interested in these hydrocarbons and in particular the sex differences. And they were uh, trying to find out which tissues were producing these hydrocarbons. And you could do this by feminizing. There are certain genes in flies which will t turn you into a male or a female. And by doing some genetic jiggery-poker, it doesn't really matter, they were able to only feminize certain bits of the fly. Mm -hmm. So you get a male fly and he would have bits of his abdomen, as the rear end would be female, and he would then start producing female pheromones. We could say, aha, that's where the pheromones are being produced. So it's a matter of identifying the tissues. Very, very detailed. Doesn't really matter. But the student came up with a, what Jean-Francois thought was a daft idea. The student said, well, okay, that's what happens if we feminize a male. What happens if we feminize a female? So basically putting an extra copy of a gene that makes you female into a female. And Jean-Francois quite rightly said to the students, it's a stupid experiment, we won't do anything, don't bother. 
The student quite rightly thought, bugger that, I'm going to do this, he won't know. <laughs> and that's the right thing to do. Uh, he did the, this stupid experiment and it produced something extraordinary. That is, the flies had no pheromones at all. All these hydrocarbons just disappeared, which was not expected and we still don't know why it happens. So then the question came is, okay, well, we've now got this pheromone-free fly. Let's put it in a little chamber and put a male in there and see what he thinks. And the males went nuts. In a bad Ooh. way? In a good way. They oh, got very way. excited, oh. very excited. They <laughs> tried to mate with this fly, which had nothing. So all our model about what the, this stuff was, these hydrocarbons, started to fall apart because the fly was still sexy. She was still very, very attractive, even though she had none of the stuff that we'd spent, both me and Jean-Francois had spent kind of 10, 15 years working on. So that meant a lot of head scratching. In fact, it was the best thing I was ever involved in because I, I was just kind of like the advisor. Me and Jean-Francois met once a week in a Parisian cafe and he'd bring the data, say this is the experiments that have been done and we'd talk about it and argue about it and then we'd decide on what experiment, not me, that's good, he <laughs> should go away and do. And he went away and with the student did some more experiments then came back and all the rest of it. And anyway, to cut a very long story short, what this showed, because we also noticed that the other species which shouldn't have liked this fly because they don't normally like it, when you put a male from a different species in, he would go nuts as well. So it seemed there was something common that we hadn't detected. There was something still on the fly or that she was producing that they still found smelled exciting. Universally hot fly. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what that suggested was that the stuff that we've been studying, which was significant, and did have an effect and would make a male vibrate his wing and you could put a certain amount of it and he'd vi vibrate so much. You put a bit more and he'd vibrate his wing a bit more. So you had nice kind of dose response curves, they're called. But what it turned out was the stuff we'd been studying for 15 years was primarily, it was there not to excite a male of the same species, but it was to say to a male of a different species, hey, you don't want to bother don't with bother. me. So it's actually an inhibitory <laughs> signal. So the whole, our whole interpretive framework was kind of flipped upside down and we also showed that there were other things that we couldn't detect but we could measure the effect of which were also having an effect and that's turned into a big area of research we still don't fully understand exactly how these flies are communicating but what we thought was just one or two compounds has turned out to be dozens which have all got different messages in the life of the fly. We're going to talk about maggots. We are going yeah, to talk, talk, maggots. About, talk about maggots, yeah, exactly. exactly. That's why I have That's how I start every conversation. That's, that, that, that's another example of me being dim <laughs> um, and not, not thinking about things. So when I was thinking about applying to become, get the CNRS job, this job as a researcher, you had to give a presentation to a committee. It wasn't just a matter of saying, okay, I've got a great CV, which I didn't have particularly, but it was more a matter of saying, this is what I want to do. This is, this is my scientific project. And the sense of smell was what we decided to focus on. And at the time, uh, this was remarkably mysterious, I and mean, it still is, but uh, this was before some key molecular breakthroughs had been made. And so we didn't know exactly how a cell that is detecting a smell we didn't know what kind of receptor there was on that cell so molecularly we had no idea what was going on my boss kept on saying look why don't you think about maggots and i said look i don't want to do that maggots are really boring they're stupid it's just i don't fancy that at all they're boring and stupid <laughs> <laughs> which is true <laughs> which is absolutely true but i was the one being dim because that's why i should study them and he nagged me and nagged me and then I said, okay, to keep him quiet. I said, right, I'll do it. So 
to study sense of smell and a maggot you get basically a, a dish a small dish with a layer of agar which is kind of jelly so it's quite firm on the base of it collect your maggots no matter how you've done that you get a load of little maggots you put them in the middle you put a smell at one edge then you put the lid on i did all that and all the maggots moved towards the smell and i said i came out of the room and said okay i'm doing that that's fantastic <laughs> they all did what i expected them to. in choosing to study a particular organism or a particular uh, sensation or a particular method you need to think about well, what am i trying to answer and what I wanted to, what we wanted to know was how does the sense of smell work? And that meant you wanted a really strong, robust response to smell. And doing things with adults, which can move in three dimensions, the clues in the name, mm -hmm. you know, they fly, they're interested in sex, they're interested in all sorts of things. They've got very good eyesight, so they get distracted. You ask them a question when you put them in an experiment. Can you smell this? What do you think of it? And if they think, oh, she's nice, oh, that, and they go off and start you know, pestering the local female, or if they can see you moving around, they go, oh my God, he's going to swap me, I'm not moving. You don't get a good response. Whereas a maggot is only interested in eating. It is exactly like the hungry caterpillar. It's very dim. It's got a, an animal of very, very little brain. It's got a brain around about 30,000 neurons. Fly's got about 100,000. So it's got far fewer neurons. It can only move in two dimensions. Yeah, can't move up and down or anything like that. And all it's interested in, it's not interested in sex because it's a juvenile form, all it's interested in doing is eating. And that means that all it's interested is in smell. If it's in a place where it can't get food, it wants to pay attention to sensory, to olfactory stimuli. So, as I say, that was me. I taught a very strong lesson there, <laughs> which I should have known. Whereas, you know, these kind of thing, you kick yourself. Think, oh, that was dim of me. That was, what, uh, 30 years ago. And so... so I'm the still studying it. Yeah, and, and I mean, the reason that they do have a sense of smell then is, is we think, because it helps them move towards food sources. Is that the, the well, best explanation for that? I don't, I, we don't know why they have a sense of smell. So one of the attractions of them is their sense of smell is very rudimentary. <laughs> so you've got 4 million smell cells in your nose. Right? They're divided up into about 400 different types. And each smell cell can respond to more than one kind of odour. And each odour can activate more than one kind of smell cell. So you've got this really, really rich activity right at the very beginning. So in your nose, in fact, it's very high up in your, not actually in your nose, it's about eye level, in fact, is where you're smelling right now. Bits of your brain that dangle down through the bottom of your skull into the very, very top of your nasal cavity. So round about, round about there, yeah, eye level, yeah? In there, those neurons being activated, turned on and off as you breathe in and out, you know, you're, Get your hoppy smell. You don't get water. Uh, anyway, get your beer. Yeah, got a nice bit of acidity. A bit of lemon. You can smell all that. Anyway, that's all. And you can do all that. You can, yeah, yeah. That's what's actually happening. In your, you're getting an immediate image in your, at the very, very beginning of your sensory processing. A fly has got about 1,200 smell cells on its antenna, and they're divided up into about 60 types. A maggot has just 21 smell cells. Each one is different. So you've got 21 different types. And by using some fairly simple Drosophila genetics, we can make a maggot with just one functioning smell cell. So it's just got one cell in. And so you can give it a smell. You say, what do you think of that? You've just got one cell. Can you detect it? So a single cell can guide a maggot to up a, an odor gradient to find an odor it likes. And in particular, this is what I've been doing with my colleague, uh, Kathy McCrone, since I came to Manchester. 
is we can record the electrical activity of that cell. So this is a tiny little thing in a tiny little organism, but if you're very clever, and I don't do this, I get other people to do it for me, because <laughs> it's you need the patience of a saint. Electrophysiology, it's called this way of recording from the activity of single cells, gives beautiful data when it works. And most of the time it doesn't work, you <laughs> strap your maggot up and you get nothing, you throw it away, do it again. And I don't have the patience for that, I don't have the, the fingers, you've got to have the right fingers for it. But when you do it, it's absolutely fantastic. You can see what a single cell is doing, how a single cell responds to a particular smell and how it responds to a range of smells at different concentrations. That's what I was gonna ask, does one cell detect many different yeah. smells? In most cases, and we'll come on to one very interesting example in humans later on, uh, in which it's not, it's, there is just one smell that activates a particular smell cell. So what that means is that basically we do not know how many smells an organism can detect. Some American colleagues uh, caused a huge row about three years ago when they did a basically a modeling paper, a mathematical paper, in which they said, well, you know, humans with our 400 types of neuron, maybe we can detect a trillion different odors. This is a mathematical calculation. Mathematicians got very cross saying, you don't understand anything about mathematics which the scientists responded, okay, fair enough, but you really don't understand anything about biology, which was actually true. <laughs> so we don't know how many smells a human can detect, but it is essentially infinite. I think most people now agree. There used to be a figure floating around the literature, so oh, humans can detect 20,000 different odors. And somebody wrote an article saying, well, where, where, did you it, where, where does this number come from? <laughs> and you, you follow it back, and then in the mid-60s, it kind of evaporates, and you can't find where, and it's not based on any fact at all. Isn't that a Bill Bailey joke about the worst pain ever as well? You get these statistics go around about stepping on a stonefish is the worst pain ever, and it's who's gone around and felt all the pain? <laughs> yes. Well, there, no, there's a geezer who does that. There oh, is, really? Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. There is a geezer who does that, and he, he not only does it on... Uh, he does it with different pains, he does it on different parts of his body. Oh, Including wow. the place you might imagine that was extremely sensitive, and it is. On a stonefish. Oh. Well, not on a stonefish, <laughs> but uh, he would get different, or I mean, he may well have done stonefish, but no, he does that with different organisms that will sting you, and different sources of pain, and wow. he studies that. Bullet so that's, wow. but presumably, well, and that was the worst, oh, yeah. and I've studied them. That's They're awesome. very, very nasty. But presumably there wasn't someone that went around and smelled 20,000 things, and then did 20,001, and went, oh, that's the yeah. thing about the, the trillion odors. They didn't actually, you know, nobody could sit and say, oh, come, that was different from that. And all. <laughs> anyway, that's partly what led me down this road of studying these single neurons, because the brain is very, very complicated. I think the, the main thing which ourselves and other people demonstrated, which was already known, but it's still worth repeating, is that People think, oh, well, the brain's a bit like a computer. Nervous systems are like computers. They're like digital. No, they're not. No, they're not. So they're not at all digital. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the brain is a computer analogy kind of falls apart as soon as you start thinking about it. So a neuron says to the brain, when you're smelling or listening, the sounds of my voice is causing the neurons in your ear to fire. It sends what are called spikes. So it does send a digital signal, zero or one, down the neuron. This is called an action potential. It goes down. But that's not all it does. It sends down more or less of these things. So though it's digital in that it either fires or it doesn't, in fact, what the brain is interested in is how often does it fire? So it's a frequency. So basically, the more intense a stimulus, the more often that the unit will, the neuron will fire. 
And so something somewhere in the brain is recognised, oh, there's a lot more of it this time. It can, in somehow, doing some counting. What we've recently been able to do is to show that it's even more complicated than that, that the, as you smell something, so let's say you just get a brief one-second pulse of a smell and you're a maggot, then your neuron, the same neuron, can respond in all sorts of ways to different smells. Some gets really, really excited. I'm making that noise, not because I'm grabbing <laughs> we, we, we have an audio output to know what's going on. So it basically sounds like that. No, I mean, it doesn't sound like that. Yeah, it's so. accompanied by quite a good visual output. Yeah, as well. okay, I'm sorry about that. We should have a camera. <laughs> yeah, the, the camera the version. Yeah. Right. So it goes up and it goes down. And, uh, or you might find that sometimes in d the same neuron is giving a pulsed response. So it's going brum, brum, as you give it. So it's got two peaks. Or it may go completely quiet. Absolutely nothing. So normally neurons are just kind of firing away every now and again, six times a second, bap, 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 firing away. And some smells make the same neuron go off completely. So the very idea of a digital nose mm -hmm. and even more a digital brain is just nonsense. It's composed of these very, very rich analog signals which you can't simply say is it yes or no it's kind of well maybe or it's like this so that explains how that trillion figure is not bonkers because you know not only have you got this overlap this what's called a combinatorial code at the periphery but each neuron is not simply saying yes or no i smelt this it's giving a very complicated signal to the brain what it's detected what kind of concentration that odor is at and so on and i suppose to bring that back to maggots despite their 20, I've forgotten the number 21. already. 21 cells, yes. They presumably still have a range of potential things they can smell. In fact, I yeah. think you that you definitely wrote about an extremely interesting example in one of your blog posts about forensics. There's an application of maggots in forensics that I had no idea about. Yeah. Would you be able to talk about that? It's a bit grim. Uh, <laughs> it's very grim, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Quite dark. You know, if, uh, so you're, you've all seen CSI or whatever police procedure on the telly and they find the body and they say, well, when did the, you know, when, when did the murder take place? And that's all right if it was kind of 24 hours ago because they simply stick a thermometer at the bum of the poor old dead person and then that gives them the body temperature and they can simply work out how long given the ambient temperature the body's been there what happens if it's a bit longer what happens if the body's been there for weeks mm -hmm. then you know you just got a load of mess basically then they work it out by the insects that are on it mm -hmm. so a dead body is good eating and so you get what's called succession. Different animals are going to come in and eat it at different phases. And flies and burying beetles in particular, very, light, you know, very keen on dead bodies, are attracted to the smell of dead body. And depending on what maggots you find on it, then you can tell how long it's been uh, dead. And even within a single type of maggots, um, maggots have been used like historically for wound healing. I always remember yeah. that scene in Gladiator that makes oh, me yeah. feel slightly yeah. unwell. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, maggot therapy is a massive thing, right? I mean, you're all young and healthy. <laughs> if you have a relative who's a bit older and who's got uh, type 2 diabetes, mm. then they will probably end up like Henry VIII with a wound that won't heal. So what happens is because of the extra sugar in your blood, the blood supply to the, the wound means that it's really kind of sweet and sticky, so the bacteria carry on growing in it, and your antibiotics don't do any good. So then you get the danger of gangrene. What you can do is you can chop the leg off. It's normally a leg, a bit grim. Or put maggots on. 
These are sterile maggots. Uh, there's a big factory in uh, South Wales that makes them, lovely and sterile. They put them in kind of tea bag things because otherwise they disappear and you lose them and people don't like having flies about. It's not quite as good as... The best treatment is to put the raw maggot, the you know, naked maggot, onto your flesh. You can't feel it, but they put this kind of tea bag thing on. Basically, the maggots, then they do two things. They will eat the dead tissue, only the dead tissue. They're not... These aren't my maggots. They're like fishing maggots, you know, big whopping great yeah. things, you know. And the maggot will then devour it, devour the dead flesh, the bits that's rotting, and also they produce a microbicide. So they're actually killing the microbes that are in there. So it's doing you two bits of good. First, it's cleaning, it's what's called debriding the wound, getting rid of all the dead tissue. So then your immune system's got possibility of rebuilding it. And secondly, it's killing the microbes that are endangering the rest of your leg. So that's a big thing in the, in the NHS is, and it's very, very cheap. There is what the nurses call the yuck factor with this because people don't like the idea. But hey, yeah. you know, which would you rather have? A few maggots in a tea bag or lose your leg? Yeah, I was going to say it sounds yeah, like a pre preferable yeah, option. Sure. So that, yeah. that's, a, that's a major. It, maggots are used for that. It's a really big thing. Yeah. That's so cool. And we'd be remiss not to ask you, you teased, you teased an upcoming fact earlier on about a minute ago. You said there's a... Ah. A thing in humans. Okay, right. Well, this relates to the best idea I've had. <laughs> right? It's the, yeah, it's only really, I think it's only the only really good uh, idea I've had in, in, in science. So it's been known for a long time that there's a particular odour uh, called androstomy, which I just happen to have in my pocket. Oh, oh wow. No. Okay, so I'm going to do an experiment okay. here. And I, I mean, yeah, you'll see why this is not, okay. it probably won't work. So this stuff here. Can you hear? Do you, can you hear? This smells quite sweet to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think of it? Yeah, yeah, that's reasonably sweet. Reasonably sweet? Okay, this isn't very good. Right, what do you think? So, we're just, we're just smelling a little sort of yeah, I'm brown getting, bottle. It's slightly medicinally sweet, Medicinal? Yeah, do you want to give it a go? That's okay, great. Right, we, should, we, should, we should say to everybody that yeah. we are three white, probably European origin <laughs> yes. uh, blokes, and uh, there is a, a kind of um, a global distribution. So the response to this, normally when I do it, if you've got a lot of people, basically uh, you find some people like us who think it's quite sweet, uh, you find some people who can't smell it at all. Other people who think oh. that it is absolutely disgusting. Oh, really? So they think it smells like a back alley where blokes have been peeing and stuff like that. And then you find around about 5% who go, hey. <laughs> How <are> you doing? <laughs> so, so to be, to be totally open here, I may have been suffering slightly from confirmation bias. It, within your sample, you might have more variability Can than you you smell think. it again? I thought it, well, I would put myself in the group that can't smell too much, actually. Okay. I can't get a huge amount from it. Okay. And you were all saying sweet, and I was like, yeah. Okay. Maybe. Nobody thought it smelled of piss. I'll, I'll give it a double try. Yeah, give it a yeah, yeah, I, I feel, feel like, like they really want to smell thing. this. <laughs> Love the smell yeah, of this. Local alleys are available if you really want to go and smell what it's like. <laughs> I don't think I did get no, that. You'd, no, you'd, no, you'd, you'd be reeling. If you, you know, people who don't like it, okay. absolutely pull faces. Right. They want to be sick. No, no, no. So we all like it. Okay. okay. Or we can't oh, smell it. Yeah. So sure. this difference was shown by my, my colleagues, Leslie Vossel and Andreas Keller in America. This odour is only detected by one of our 400 types of neuron. Mm -hmm. Only one. And this is the only odour that activates that, that neuron. So it's an exception to this general rule that I've been saying. 
And they investigated these differences. It's quite an interesting example of how science works. So they did this in about 2002. They did the experiment. They got three, 400 New Yorkers in to smell this and lots of other things. And at the same time, they collected mouth swaps because they knew, or they hoped, that one day DNA sequencing would be cheap enough to be able to study that. At the time, it was ludicrously expensive. They just collected these individuals, with the agreement of the subjects, of course, shoved it in the freezer. Then, eventually, the price of DNA sequencing came down enough for them to be able to say, okay, why don't we look at that? Why don't we see what's the correlation between these various responses and the genes that these people have? And what they were able to show was that the protein that enables us to detect this stuff is encoded by a gene. People who like it or have one particular variant of that gene, people who don't like it have another variant. And in particular, that difference, that difference from hmm to oh my God, that's disgusting, is simply based on two letters change in the DNA. Two letters transform nice to oh my God, it's disgusting. And what's really interesting if you think about it, well, wait a minute, what does that actually mean? So we've got a difference in perception. And if you, any of you had hated it, you'd still be retching now. I mean, it is very, very <laughs> dramatic when people don't like it. In some way, we can link it back to the maggots, what I was saying about how the neurons respond. The same neuron in a maggot or in you can, is not just going on and off. It's giving a shape. It's giving a quality of what it's, what's gone on. The difference in our perception is due to the activity of a single class of neurons. So the people who don't like it have got their neurons doing one particular thing. Those of us who do like it have got the same neurons doing something slightly different. And that's caused by a difference in some way we don't understand in the shape of the receptor, which is binding with this smell. And it's the only receptor that can bind with that smell, and that smell can only activate that receptor. And it's somehow changing the electrical activity of the neuron, which in a way which is completely mysterious, is producing a difference in perception. Wow. And all that is caused by a single letter change or two single letter changes in the DNA. And is there a, a biological purpose yeah, for why say, one well, person... Yeah, okay, why? so this stuff, were you to go to certain uh, parts of certain towns um, where you find certain shops is sold as a pheromone. It's oh, sold okay. as a pheromone and uh, it's generally sold in two versions. It's sold in a pack with a kind of muscular bloke on it saying, attracts men fast. And then also sold in a pack with a kind of busty lady saying, attracts women fast. So that straight away tells you, wait a minute, there's something <laughs> going on here. We're not flies. What's this? How could this be a pheromone? And clearly it's not a pheromone because some people like it. Yeah. Other people think it's disgusting. Other people can't smell it. So there is sufficient variation in humans for us to say this is not a pheromone in humans. It doesn't work that way. It is, in fact, a pheromone, but only if you're a pig. So <laughs> this stuff is secreted by a, the boar um, and it uh, induces ovulation in the sow. Oh, wow. So if you're a pig farmer, you get this stuff in a big spray, you spray it up your sow's nostrils, you surprise her with a turkey baster, and then a few weeks later, you get piglets. I really wow. like the idea of someone purchasing this as a fear yeah, of you instead of walking past a pig farm. <laughs> Oh, right. I, I thought you meant they're going like to buy that as a pheromone and not realising that everyone around them no, thinks No, I'm imagining the opening your front door and finding 300 horny pigs. <laughs> Desperate to get. Yeah. So, that, I mean, all that is, that's known. That's, that's not what I did. 
<laughs> this is my idea. Now, I was involved with a colleague called Cara Hoover, who's based in Alaska. She started off as an anthropologist and interested in how people eat and their eating habits around the world. And then she kind of started, quite bizarrely, to become a molecular geneticist and got very interested in the basis of the sense of smell. We were discussing various projects and we ended up working together, interpreting data from indigenous people who've allowed their DNA to be sequenced. And we were looking at the DNA sequence from these 1,000 people from around the world, looking to find who had which variant of this DNA. So which parts of the world thought it was a nice smell and which parts of the world thought it was a nasty smell. And we didn't do that by testing people, we did it from their DNA, because we know there's this one-to-one -one link between the sequence and what you think. You can predict somebody's DNA from how they respond, and you can predict how they'll respond from their DNA. And so what that showed was something very interesting, uh, that we found that the people who really don't like it tended to be from, from Africa, and that would suggest that it's the ancestral version, because we all come from Africa originally. So the beginning would have been, we would not have liked this smell, which is even more reason to think that it's not a Then what we found was that lots of Europeans in particular tend to have the, oh, it's not so bad, it's quite nice version. And by a mixture of kind of pure speculation and some reasonable data collection, we, we interpret the origin of this not so bad version as being from Southeast Asia. Why that is interesting is that's also the site where we first domesticated the pig. Oh. So the hypothesis, which is entirely gratuitous, it's not been proved, is that the mutation arises, has no particular virtue. Uh, some people can not smell this stuff, but they never, you're not going to smell it. You're not going to be near a wild boar. Once they start domesticating the pig, there's a, there's a real problem. It's a problem in pig farms today. If you've got a male pig, you castrate him. You castrate him, one, because you don't want him to get into fights, mm -hmm. but also if he grows up into a boar, then his uh, meat is going to smell, stroke, taste of this stuff. And if, you know, 20% of your potential buyers aren't going to want to eat it because it tastes of piss. Yeah. I mean, there might be some people's cup of tea, but most people aren't into that. <laughs> so the idea is this enabled us to domesticate the pig. And I just came to a stop, not because I was tired, although I was, but I just came to a stop because it suddenly occurred to me, wait a minute. Okay, we're looking at all this DNA from people around the world and we can predict how they're going to respond. What about our close relatives? What about Neanderthals? Ah. Because Neanderthal DNA has been sequenced. In 2010, we sequenced the Neanderthal genome. There have been about, what, eight, nine gene, whole genome sequenced. So we know what the Neanderthals look like. What do they think of this stuff? Because we can use the same principle. We can look in their DNA, find the gene. There are only 96 protein encoding differences between us and the Neanderthals. I mean, we mated with them. So, you know, we... Our genes, some proportion of your, our genes, probably all of us, around 3 or 4% of our genes are Neanderthal. Around half of the Neanderthal genome is lurking in little bits around the world. So, what the question then came, well, what did the Neanderthals think of it? So we went and we looked, and what that showed was that uh, the Neanderthals would have hated it, which is exactly what we'd expect. I was because, going to say, that's what, okay, from what you said it's about the ancestral, ancestral form. Yeah, yeah. The Neanderthals leave Africa first. Yeah. Around about 600,000 years ago, we leave 80,000 years ago, something like that. You'd expect that the ancestral form they would have shared. Okay, that's fine. There's another group of people 
who you may not have heard of. Now, you should have done because you would have been in my lectures. <laughs> um, and these people are called the Denisovans or the Denisovans. I mean, nobody knows. There isn't a pronunciation. They're not going to say they're dead. Um, <laughs> and it's not what they call themselves anyway. So this is named after a cave in uh, Siberia called Denisova because there was a... A hermit called Dennis who used to live there. So that's, 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 seriously, that's why. So this is a cave that we've been investigating for a long time because it's got layers of Neanderthal bones, human bones, other bones going back down. So we've lived in it. Neanderthals lived in it, and all the rest of it. In 2011, so a year after they sequenced the Neanderthal genome, there was this absolute bombshell which nobody was expecting at all, in which they said, "Oh, in Denisova Cave, we found a really weird tooth." and a weird finger bone. And not only did these look weird, well, certainly the tooth does, the finger bone just look like a finger bone, but we ground up the finger bone, we haven't got it anymore, came from a nine-year-old girl, and it's from a completely different branch of humanity because we've analyzed the DNA. And this DNA is not like Neanderthal, it's not like human, it's something else completely. So the Denisovans, as they call them, so we haven't, they're not called homo anything, because, you know, if we mated with Neanderthals, that meant that, from a biological point of view, these were, in fact, the same species. So we, you know, yeah. that's kind of a biological definition of what a species is. Do you have fertile offspring? We did, because it's in our DNA. So technically, us and Neanderthals, as far as I'm concerned, were not different species. You haven't got enough bones from these poor old Denisovans. Found about five, six bones. Very excitingly, last week, somebody's claimed to have a part of a skull. So it's getting closer. But what was fascinating was that they sequenced the DNA of these Denisovans and they found that they too mated with us. So people who are from uh, East Asia and in particular Southeast Asia and from Australia have got an awful lot of Denisovan DNA in them. About 8% of some peoples living out in Southeast Asia, Australasia, uh, of their genome is from the Denisovans. So... The question was also, we also thought, what did the, how could the Denisovans smell? And what was interesting, I think there are about three genomes have uh, been made. One of those genomes had a form that was completely different. So there was a mutation that is not seen in any human life today and isn't in the Neanderthals. So this gets very interesting. Mm -hmm. So the question then is, okay, two of the Denisovans would have hated it, like yeah. the Neanderthals. What about this geezer? or geezerette. What would they have thought? And at this point, it's kind of a lesson in the history of science and how science works. So we've got this brilliant idea. What we're going to do is we're going to recreate the Denisovan nose. We're not really. Right? What we're going to do is we're going to get an ordinary human gene, change that single letter, so it's now like the gene of the Denisovan. We then put this gene into a cell, which isn't even a nose cell, it's just a cell that you can easily grow, and we're going to basically pour the uh, smell, androsterone it's called, pour it over the, this uh, mutated cell to see how it responds. And at this point, it's a bit like, this is kind of Schrodinger's experiment, <laughs> yeah. right? So if it produces something amazing, like something novel, then this goes to one of the glam mags, like science, <laughs> yeah, cell, nature. Yeah. This is really sexy and it's amazing. You know, we've, we've recreated the nest of a nose and it does this. And if nothing happens, then it's a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> so when you do the experiment, you don't know what's gonna happen. Which way is it gonna go? 
and it went the disappointing way. It didn't oh, make any difference. Oh, that's <laughs> so the cat was dead. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, but I mean, that, to be honest, it's still. I think it's still absolutely amazing. Yeah, well, you know, at least very cool. You know, you can peer, use, and this general principle here that you can use modern uh, sensory biology, understanding how genes and phenotypes work in modern humans, to then peer back into the minds of these people who've been dead for 40, 70,000 years. And that, I think, is absolutely <laughs> mind Now, one thing I've noticed throughout this whole podcast so far is that you are very good at, and tend to also use, storytelling as a means to communicate your science. And you have, in the past, you've uh, had awards for your teaching and for your science communication. So I suppose, as a very broad, open question, how important do you think it is that scientists are good communicators? <laughs> Well, I mean, the whole point about science is to communicate. If you can't explain it in some way, then and you've got your results and you don't communicate it to anybody, then nobody cares. And the primary duty of the scientist is to communicate that result to other scientists, so to be able to write uh, papers. But from then on, it gets quite tricky. So I have been in conferences where people who I've you know, had a real crush on uh, from running read their papers and they oh god this person's marvellous and they have given the most awful talk you know they are, they clearly you know they're so embarrassed or withdrawn or unable to communicate to their audience I've been kind of crippled by anxiety that you know you think well just don't do why are you doing this so I don't think there's any obligation on scientists no I think there's as a community, we have an obligation, but any individual... I mean, I've got plenty of colleagues who really do not like talking to the media, would not want to do this, just because they're quite reserved, and that's their way, and that's fine. They're doing great science. As long as they can express their ideas clearly in their articles, then I don't think it, I don't think it matters. Yeah. I think as a community, I think we have an obligation for two reasons. One, you know, we're very lucky. We're paid a lot of money or not a lot of money, but we're paid money. <laughs> we're paid money and given public money to do research. And then the public... I mean, some of it's quite obscure. You know, my work on fruit flies or maggots, why should anybody care? Well, maybe there's a story that they might find interesting or something like that. So I think there's an obligation on us as a community to communicate that. But sometimes that's really difficult. So, for example, I don't know, theoretical physics which I don't understand. I'm not sure a lot of them do. They argue about it incessantly. It's all theoretical. There's only so much you can get away with. It, some science is very difficult to explain in simple terms. What I've been talking about is fairly straightforward. Uh, but there are some things that are very complicated and it's very difficult to really get over without getting into the technical detail. Interestingly, they tend to do very well on television quite often, Theory. I've noticed. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and, even, and all this, and, and what you're just saying, probably leads into the fact that we've just had two or three anecdotes where we've said something and you've said, no, that's bollocks. <laughs> because, because, I know, for me, I've heard some... Like, you know, read some news story or read some blog or something and thought, oh, that's a really cool, like, factoid to bring out in the pub. And then it turns out that if the study wasn't rubbish, then it's probably translated into something a lot simpler and vaguely inaccurate later and then sort of fed back to the public. For me, explaining how things were first understood is often a... Uh, it reveals a simplicity which it doesn't was often turned out to be not true later on so if you think about what I started off saying about the pheromones we had this stuff and it showed the amount of it on the cuticle and the outside of the female that excited the male the more of it there was the more male got excited fantastic and that's what we thought for 15 years turned out not to be quite true so 
if I started off by explaining the complex stuff, where we are now, it, it's just kind of a blizzard of names and initials and uh, horrendous complexity. Whereas you start off with the, the very simple understanding at the beginning, then you can gradually build up and at least get some way towards where we are today. The dilemma of the scientist wanting to make something interesting, you want your, your research to be interesting to the public, you want it to be something... Well, not everybody does. Well, no, yeah, okay, sorry, yeah. but if you, if, you want, if you want it to be interesting... And some of it isn't, yeah. you know, I'm, I would defend uninteresting, boring, or un- science that is not interesting to the public, that, sci- that the public does not get, I would still defend that as being a, an absolutely valid enterprise and good value for money if it's interesting science in exactly the same way as somebody who's studying medieval manuscripts or shards of Roman pottery or whatever, right? I mean, human knowledge is not limited to the functional or what appears to be the functional because sometimes you find things out without expecting it to or to the stuff that the public finds interesting. You talked a bit earlier about your upcoming book that's not actually out yet. No, it won't be out, won't be out for another year, I'm afraid. It's, uh, uh, is, is the title that's on Amazon accurate? No, it's wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> we changed it. Uh, it's currently The Mind Machine, Our Quest to Understand the Brain. Excellent. Okay. and But it's a year away. Is it, I mean, in... Just, I don't know how long publishing takes. Is, yeah. is it finished and you just have to wait? Uh, yeah, I mean, so it's what's called a trade book. So it's published by a commercial publisher, not by a university press. And it's aimed at the general public and the informed reader. And that means, therefore, there are different rules about when books should be published. Mm. So it was supposed to be out this summer. It took me a bit longer to finish it, or rather I did finish it, and it was far too long. And the publisher said, hmm... That's great, marvellous, fantastic, everything's marvellous. Marvellous, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, it is a bit long, it costs 30 quid in hardback. So I said, well, I wouldn't pay that for it, so we're going to have to cut it down. So I had to cut a lot of it down, that took me quite some time. And then I said to him at the beginning of uh, the year, I said, okay, so I'm done now. Right, okay, um, we feel very strongly, that means the sales team (laughs) who decide everything, that it's a spring book. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they they think it's a book you buy for yourself. And to be absolutely honest, the problem is it takes roughly nine months, for some reason, Mm -hmm. to make a book. Mm -hmm. It's not making a baby. Nine months. From the moment you finish the manuscript, lots and lots of fiddling around with it, then you get the proofs, then it's got to go away and printed, and then it gets into the bookshop. So the problem is if I delivered it now, which is pretty much finished, it hits autumn. And what is autumn in the UK book trade? It's celebrity memoirs, it's hairy biker cookbooks, other cookbooks are available, and that's it. Christmas is just loads of books, and my little book, well, it's not going to be little, but my book would not be seen Um, in that that morass, right? So that's the problem. So I left it too late, so that's why it's going to come out. A spring book, buy it for yourself, folks, (laughs) Uh, next March currently called The Mind Machine, Our Quest to Understand the Brain, and it takes us from prehistory right up to tomorrow, about how we have thought about the brain down the ages, and too long, didn't read, we've no idea.
This podcast is made possible by Brilliant.org, a great resource if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and then explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, makes learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems to provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. With courses on everything from computational biology to orbital physics, whatever you'd like to learn more about or brush up on, Brilliant.org have a course or chapter for you. You're bound to love it, especially since using the link in the podcast description will get the first lucky 200 users 20% off their premium plan. Get in! Thank you very much, Professor Matthew Cobb. What a fascinating, well, I mean, yeah, that was a long, that was, a long old podcast. That was amazing, yeah. Like, I feel like we covered, well, we covered literally everything in human knowledge, basically. We, we certainly did. We made our way through quite a lot of beer during the conversation as yeah, well. Yeah, there's a lot of tasty IPA. While Matthew was sneakily on the low-calorie tonic water. Yeah, you'll never hear that. We'll be as completely lucid as he is by the end (laughs) (laughs) yes Uh, so thank you very much to Matthew that was a fantastic podcast and you are listening to the Pint of Science podcast as I'm sure you know by now do subscribe if you haven't already yes please do make sure all of your friends are signed up all of your science friends all of your non-science friends who you really have always wanted to show how cool science is this is your opportunity it is please tell your gran tell your shopkeeper tell literally everyone you know exactly and get on Twitter use the hashtag Hashtag pintcast19. That is obviously going to become pintcast20, 21, 22. This, this <laughs> podcast is going to be... Oh, it's going places. It's, it's going places, exactly. Um, yes, thank you very much for, for joining us here at the Salutation in Manchester, which has been a fantastic venue. Mm-hmm. And you should all get on down here. They've got a great selection of beer on tap and a dartboard, I noticed. <laughs> I like a dartboard. Yeah, nearly got hit by a dart on the way in. Yeah, there was, was some questionable darts <laughs> yeah. players on the go. Yeah. Cool. All right, guys. Well, we'll be back next Monday with another episode. But until then, you guys stay classy. Stay classy and check out thepintofscience.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Sam, the producer of the Pint of Science podcast. I usually sit behind the desk whilst Callum and Jim do the talking. But I do have a podcast of my own. And since you're clearly into learning and having a bit of fun, you might just like it. It's called That Was Genius, and it's a history podcast in which my friend Tom and I surprise each other every week with a funny, gruesome, or just plain odd historical story. Other than having a weekly theme, the rest is up for grabs, so there's lots of silly jokes and plenty of dubious accents. A bit like these. Mais oui, these eight-month-old donuts. I have never tested anything like it. Sacre bleu! I've never tested anything so hard. I love the presentation box. When I open it, all the flies come out. It's a beautiful. It is a multisensory experience. It is wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. The, the smell, the sight. Oh. If you're interested in finding out more, search your favourite podcast app for That Was Genius or go to www.thatwasgeniuspodcast.com.